Do you flip through music podcasts like you would the dollar bins of your local record shop, hoping to stumble upon that rare pressing or super under-the-radar classic? Well, dig no further. Vinyl Emergency is where musicians, everyday album collectors, and those who design, release, or otherwise celebrate vinyl records come to share their stories about how this influential medium has shaped their lives and careers. I'm your host, Jim Hankey, and you can join me and a new guest every other Tuesday as we take you through LP artwork that has stood the test of time, our favorite neighborhood record stores, the first albums we ever bought. The tangible object of a vinyl record can spark so many intangible memories, and that's what Vinyl Emergency aims to capture and share with you. Past episodes have featured interviews with Roseanne Cash, Hosier, Creed Bratton from NBC's The Office, members of Foo Fighters, Wilco, Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers, and Run DMC. Not to mention label owners, record pressers, and more within today's exploding vinyl community. You don't need to be a longtime record collector to enjoy or keep up with our conversations, but I guarantee you'll learn something new whenever you listen. Subscribe to Vinyl Emergency however you get podcasts, and follow the show on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Vinyl Emergency. common with our listeners and that we are middle-aged guys with beards so we say to those listeners how much could you save in one year by switching to harry's enough to buy 26 cups of coffee in new york city enough for three deep dish pizza dinners in chicago enough to pay six months of your netflix subscription how harry's delivers high quality razor blades as low as two dollars each a fraction of the price of the leading brand and saving you hundreds of dollars over time I used my Harry's razor this morning. I like the grip. I really like the scent of the shave gel it comes with. It's just high quality blades. I mean, I've got a beard, but I cannot countenance a neck beard. I've got to have clean lines. And frankly, that's what I get from Harry's. I get clean lines. Get a Harry's trial set delivered to your doorstep by going to harrys.com slash BTP beyond the pond. Harry's is a return to the essential quality durable blades at a fair price just two bucks per blade cut out the middleman manufacturing blades in a german blade factory that's been honing precision blades for a century harry's is super convenient has all your grooming needs in one stop and you can feel a little bit better about your purchase because one percent of all proceeds are set aside for nonprofit organizations devoted to helping provide access to better mental health care for men and veterans to help support those who need it most right now, Harry's has donated a million dollars worth of shaving supplies to hospitals across the U.S. So listeners of Beyond the Pond can redeem their Harry's trial set at harrys.com btp. You will get a weighted ergonomic handle for a firm grip, a five-blade razor with a lubricating strip and trimmer blade, rich lathering shave gel with aloe to keep your skin hydrated, and a travel blade cover to keep your razor dry and easy to grab on the go. So go to harrys.com slash btp to start shaving and saving today. Get rid of that neck beard, guys. People don't like it. You think they do, but they don't. Let's face it, having a lawn is awesome. Maintaining it, not so much. It gets tiresome and expensive, and you should be enjoying it as opposed to constantly mowing it. That's where Sinlawn comes in. Sinlawn is environmentally friendly. There's no watering. 
No use of pesticide products, no mowing, it's very low maintenance, and you save money. Sinlaw uses bio-based ingredients such as soy and sugarcane. It's made in the USA in the state of Georgia. They're the largest manufacturer and installer of synthetic grass. And they have USDA bio-based certification. It's the safest and cleanest turf available. Great for kids and pets. You get no muddy shoes, socks, or paws. Professional and certified distributors and installers nationwide. You get a premium quality product, which is highly durable and UV stabilized. You get your free time back. You can enjoy your yard instead of working to maintain it. And you can have it in your yard where grass will not grow. It's green all year. It's really great for residential homes, playgrounds, roofs, agility, golf. You want a golf hole in your backyard and many more projects. So please visit sinlawn.com slash beyond that's s-y-n-l-a-w-n.com slash beyond get along you can be proud of all the time with pride of your neighborhood don't be that one guy in your neighborhood with the brown lawn who the neighbors gossip about over tea or even better up your short game in a major way your golf buddies and your neighbors will thank you sinlawn you brian i could live without fish more easily than i could live without caffeine that's kind of sad dude i know i'm not proud of it but that's my cross to bear there's literal film over my brain until i have that swig that first cup in the morning usually followed by four of the cups throughout the day it's not a cheap hobby well can i share some good news with you please do this is where grady's cold brew comes in Order online and get their famous New Orleans-styled iced coffee delivered straight to your door. Just add water to their all-in-one kit. You get 36 servings of cold brew for less than a buck a cup. What you're saying is that Grady's will end up saving me a ton of money, but also a ton of time. I won't have to socially distance and lie at the coffee shop because Grady's really like dispenses directly from my fridge. Already cold and completely customizable for my perfect cup. There's a literal bag of cold brew in my fridge that comes from a spigot. How cool is that? I am saying all of that and more. Grady's Cold Brew is independently owned and operated in New York City since 2011. Ready to give it a swirl, Dave? Mm-hmm. We'll get 20% off your first order at Grady'sColdBrew.com. That's Grady'sColdBrew.com with promo code BTP20. I am Brian Brinkman. You are tuned in to episode 105 of the Beyond the Pond podcast. This is the podcast in which, generally speaking, Brian and myself utilize the music of fish 
as a means of getting a listener to listen to other bands. These are usually not jam bands, because we love fish. We love, we are fish fans, especially in pandemic. It's great comfort food. However, the problem with some fish fans is that they can get a little bit myopic. Only listen to their favorite band can recite set lists backwards and frontwards in their sleep. But you tell them that there's other bands out there and they kind of look at you quizzically. And we're trying to do something about that. We really are. It's a, a mission of ours. It's a goal of ours to open your minds up beyond the world just of fish. And uh, we're hoping that this episode does that even more so. Um, we are talking about a song, a jam, a tour that is incredibly near and dear to our hearts and that uh, we hope will blow your feeble little minds and, uh, hey, may put you in a position to run to listen to other music for a little bit because it is so uh, traumatizing in the best way possible. And that is <laughs> that is a version of David Bowie from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, from the Man Music Center on June 24th, 1995. And to do so, we are joined by a fantastic human, a fantastic musician, a huge fish fan. Who is our guest today? Show yourself. <laughs> Hi, my name is Drew Hitz. <laughs> Drew, welcome to Beyond the Pond. How are you doing here, man? I'm doing great. I want to say two things. I want to say thank you for having me. Uh, it's uh, it's this is great, and and I just want to say that I love that. Uh, Wearing my entrepreneurial hat, I love the angle you guys have because you talk about music that you love, but just like your mission that you've got, like that you want to get fish fans who are so passionate about music to listen to other music and you share your passion and insights. And I, I think it's just, I think it's a really cool mission that you guys are doing. Awesome. Well, thank Thanks. you. Thank you. Appreciate that. Um, Dave, what are some of the themes that we're going to be discussing here today? Themes include challenging the audience. From atonal compositions to melodic bliss, and classical compositions for the discerning fish fan. I also think it's worth saying, uh, before we get to the fish, this is an episode, our episodes are usually in two parts, and um, in this portion, uh, this episode, it's even more so, because we are going to uh, talk about this jam with Drew, and then we are going to uh, shift into a discussion of classical compositions with Drew. And we are also going to have as guest um, the composer Don Hart, who uh, you may know from such orchestrations as Time Turns Elastic and uh, simply adding luscious beds of strings to Sigma Oasis and uh, doing much awesome compositional work with one Trey Anastasio. Absolutely. This is a fantastic episode that we we are we're very excited for you guys to hear. Yeah, that is uh, absolutely something to look forward to. And now, on that note, let's get to the fish. So, 
It's really important that we have Drew here for this episode to talk about David Bowie um, because I, I pose a question to the two of you as well as our audience. Is, is there any fish song that has fallen harder over the last 20 years than David Bowie? Maybe Lushington. <laughs> maybe, maybe Antelope? Okay, Antelope mm. is a good call. I, yeah. I mean, I, I think about this, and the reason why I said it was great to have you here is, um, you know, there's a part of me that is uh, is slightly sad at this moment. It's 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 Thursday, August sixth, as we're recording. I should be getting off a plane from Nashville uh, back yeah. to Denver with like just wonderful memories and thoughts in my head of a of a uh, great fish run uh, at Ascend Amphitheater, which I believe you were going to be at as well, Drew. Is that correct? I was going to be there. You were going to be there. So and, and we. were going to be there, and um, I had it all planned out. I was going to give you this section of a David Bowie to then take to Trey to say, <laughs> remember what you used to do? So that five years later... We'd have another breakthrough moment at Ascend Amphitheater, but we'll have to wait. It was until literally the five-year anniversary of the literally second was yeah, Mike's yeah jam, which yeah, which yeah, I was going to play that up too. So Trey, <laughs> Trey's really into that kind of stuff, as you know, you know, like yeah. with the venues and what's been played and anniversaries and all that stuff. So, yep, alas, we missed, alas. We missed the forty-five-minute Nashville Bowie. We did, we did. Damn you, COVID! But, Come on, you know. I, I, I think about this because, you know, at one point in fish history, David Bowie was the portal to the underworld. I would say it was only rivaled by Tweezer. It was the song that fish used to channel their most experimental and just like demonic instincts. And today it's really a set closer and nothing more. And that makes me sad. But we're talking about a David Bowie from a tour when it was it was king. This was uh, this yeah. and Tweezer were were everything in summer '95. Yeah, I saw the. I unfortunately missed this one, but I saw the three before this. I saw St. Louis on six thirteen, Atlanta on six fifteen, and Deer Creek on six nineteen. And uh, yeah, I saw three and six shows that week, and I'm pissed that I didn't see six and six shows. That's how <laughs> good the tune was. I mean, it was just like, yeah, it was unspeakably intense. Yeah, it was like every time – well, and it was almost as if if it didn't come right before a tweezer, it came right after a tweezer in terms of like the, the show like the show before or the show after. They were yep. just like alternating these songs throughout the tour in a way that really showcased, you know, the larger themes of the tour. Yeah. Um, you know, I would say if you want to find the golden era for this part joke, part – part prog rock revolutionary composition you know you look no further than fall 94 to summer 95 uh certainly had some peak moments on either side from 1990 to 2003 we covered one of these in uh episode 89 the albuquerque bowie about the bowie from april 8th 1992 but you know across eight months and i would even add in april 24th 1994 as well as June 18th, 1994, and nine versions in November, December, and June, uh, Bowie really helps to define Fish's brilliance in the mid-1990s, pushing them towards broader musical connectivity that would ultimately be revealed in 1997. Um, 
what are you guys kind of thoughts in terms of what fish was doing with bowie uh in the in june of 1995 well it's interesting to me going back and listening to the summer 1995 shows i mean they would just with bowie they would completely throw out the like composition i'm pretty sure that the song i think the, the song the jam portion it's an e minor and they would just completely get rid of that and try to play in as atonal fashion to the point where it almost kind of puts you behind like like under the hood how they always talked about like in rehearsal like filling filling the hay hole i mean a lot of the stuff in the bowies almost felt like the stuff that they would do in rehearsals or sound checks in an attempt to be atonal and even somewhat abrasive i mean having <clears throat> filled my ears with all this fish like 3.0 from 2009 to the present going back and listen to a 95 bowie it's, it's not unlistenable but it's definitely uh an abrasive style that they really don't seem to engage much in anymore i think the most recent example i can think of it might have been um with the baker's dozen with like jimmy's night with the drown a song i heard the ocean sing kind of has some jam and that's like a callback to a 1995 Bowie. Yes, I heard that. Yeah, they're, they, the way that I <clears throat> describe Summer 95, like the really big jams, is that I, I think that uh, as much if not more than any other time in the band's history, they had no idea either where things were going. Now, the Bowies, they did know where things were going because, uh, to my knowledge, there were not any incomplete Bowies. So it always went to the to the mountaintop. But, like, the direction, the, the, the route that it was going to take and the permutations and all of that, I truly think that the band had absolutely no idea uh, where things were going. Uh, which is why there are some, like the Deer Creek one, uh, where it was just, uh, you know, the, the version before this one, which was five days before, which was just absolute, just pedal down. Um, like, yeah, my my heart almost exploded uh, in the middle of that on that Deer Creek lawn. Um, this one mm -hmm. where it, it kind of goes, you know, there, there's just, there's no roadmap um, to so many jams in summer 95. And um, I do wish that they... It's funny, I used to travel, I used to play gigs on the road uh, six months a year, and the road is, and making a living as a touring musician is like a dream come true, but the road will wear you down very, very, very slowly, mm -hmm. like the Colorado River made the Grand Canyon, it will just <laughs> slowly but surely like grind you down, doesn't matter how nice the hotels are or how great the venues are, Sure. Um, so I totally understand why they are in a place where they do not want to uh, be on the road um, and rehearsing just like for that to be their entire lives. Um, but I do miss, I, I would love to see what 2020 fish would do if they say the Baker's dozen, if they played those 13 shows, uh, and they played like five tweezers during those 13 shows, or if they played four Bowies, um, I think it would be, it'd be interesting because it's, uh, you know, I, you, you kind of let the tunes, uh, you know, the leg stretch a little bit. Um, and it can kind of go in some more unexpected ways, which a tune like Bowie 
uh, pretty much never does. There was that one in Michigan back in what 2011, the, yeah. like a Love Supreme. I, but there's like there's a short list of Bowies that have really done anything that creative uh, in the last decade, uh, which is just in stark contrast to where it was back, you know, for this show and this tour. It's an interesting thought experiment. I, I remember Dave and I talked about this before the Bakers does, and we had a little bet going on. Of, are, are they going to do no repeats or are they going to repeat songs and basically treat it like one like normal tour just in the same venue? Mm-hmm. I, I would love for them to do another extended run like that where to your point like they have the ability to wake up in the same bed every night they don't have to get on the tour bus but they're playing you know three weeks across three weeks in the same venue and treating it as though they were going from deer creek to alpine to wherever it may be and you know the rotation kind of develops itself and you can hear kind of what what songs go down a rabbit hole one night and five nights later do a totally different thing yeah, and another thing that happens when they repeat tunes, which uh, some of their best and most famous tours, there was a lot of... Uh, well, that week that I saw those six shows, I saw Acoustic Army like nine times, I think. <laughs> um, you know, there was a lot of... Uh, which was always a, a cool breather. Um, but but it, it actually allows... Acoustic Army is the worst example. But, uh, you know, it, it gives them a chance to expand things in random places that you never really uh you know necessarily expect um well the the bowie intros for like all of the what six or seven maybe bowies for the summer um they're all very different um and i don't know this but i bet if i were to ask trey like you know he wouldn't remember but did you ever talk about was there ever a plan I, I'm get, I would strongly guess that there was never a plan that they didn't say let's extend this intro let's do this let's make this you know I think it's just they, they were living and breathing things um, and uh, and that can happen when you're doing it over and over and over again and also because you're not thinking about executing right again there's nothing to really execute in a Bowie intro but um, well even uh, this version uh, one of my favorite parts I think it's right before the UB40 where um, where Fishman out of nowhere on the toms goes like da 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 it's like this really really militant triplet on yes. beat one and on beat three of that measure and it's just that's just like a little thing but like he's never played that rhythm in that measure before or since like nothing like it and it's like right. really really uh it's 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 jarring how he does it and um and that's the kind of thing that i think happens when they're really loose and when they're very comfortable with the composed sections of things and they're repeating things a lot. I think in 92, 93, the Bowie intros was sort of just a way for them to use all of the secret language stuff. Right? Yeah. A lot of Simpsons teases all fall down. Friends at the Bowie intros, especially I want to say spring 1993, like March and April. Yeah. Sounds right. I want to say the first time they ever really jammed out the intro, like truly jammed it out, was uh, June 18th, 1994 from US, UIC, where they went into the Mind Left Body Jam. And it was like the first time that they just expanded on the idea of what could happen just with a hi-hat in space. And I, I love that. Um, obviously, here a year later, all of the Bowie jams are like being spread from kind of the meat of it. Uh, you know, once once they get past the song proper, but let's talk about um, 
some comparable versions. This Bowie, <clears throat> I mean, this is the type of Bowie I want to hear. Like 20 plus minutes. There's kind of an extended intro. Song proper is very tight, but with some weird moments within it. Then the jam, you know, from that moment that they hit that minor chord and just like go off into this darkness, there's like very quickly, uh, like you were saying, Drew, like it's it's the this unknown. And however they're going to figure their way back to the close of the song uh, always remains a mystery. Um, yeah. I have a list here of a couple comparable song or comparable versions. If we want to go through this, um, I'll kick it off with. Uh, the April 24th, 94, uh, Bowie from Charlotte. Uh, I think this is the most overlooked fish jam ever. Uh, I love this David Bowie. And this is an incredible show that I think I've referenced a couple of times on this podcast. and would encourage any of our listeners to check out, uh, the 11, 14, 1984 Bowie from, um, DeVos hall in grand rapids. Uh, fuck Betsy DeVos. I believe this is, a. Uh, associated with her family because she is from Grand, Grand Rapids, but uh, this is a mind-altering exploration. Um, <laughs> if, I may, if I may share one <laughs> funny anecdote about, about fuck Betsy DeVos, <laughs> I, um, when she got named to the, uh, yeah, the head of the Department of Education because we're living in the Upside Down, um, I posted on Facebook, I posted, I am more qualified to play the English horn with the New York Philharmonic than Betsy DeVos is to <laughs> run, which is like a, a famously difficult instrument. You can tell when you listen to just about anybody play it, you're like, that sounds like it's hard. Um, anyway, we, uh, we have a mutual friend, it turns out, who got tagged and the actual English horn player in the New York Philharmonic responded to my post and said yes you definitely are so that was like that was that was peak peak facebook so yeah yeah Love she's it. the worst but anyway yes. but that uh, bowie is not that bowie is amazing and and 12 days later they played what is dubbed the other one uh which might be my favorite david bowie uh from minneapolis minnesota um outside of the december 3rd 97 version uh 37 minutes Fishman on vacuum in the middle of it. Just in, incredible stuff. Uh, I saw the Bowie uh, yeah. in between those two, the 1120, which is not as good as 1126 or 1114. And it's a monster. It's like something like 26 minutes long. That's from Madison, Wisconsin. Yes. Um, yeah. And that's not as good as these two. And it's, and it was unbelievable. Yeah. That what a period for this tune. Just unbelievable. Yeah. Of course you got December 29th, 1994. Providence, Lassie, Good Dog. We know that's one of the greatest fish jams ever played, one of the greatest December 29th shows ever played. That's, um, I think I've mentioned in the past, me and my buddies used to talk about fish shows as being hard fish shows, as in like 300 level, not for newbies. We say December 2994, that's a hard fish show. <laughs> the lassie part of that jam scared the shit out of me mm. that night. I mean, I, I like, I, I was, um, well, yeah, I was in a, I was in a slightly altered state, and, um, <laughs> and it, yeah, it, that, like, it terrified me. Like, I, I stopped dancing. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then, June fifteenth, nineteen ninety-five, another dark and sinister. 
Mayhem Bowie in such a summer of dark and sinister mayhem. Um, June 19, 1995, from Deer Creek, which was cool. That was a recent dinner in a movie. So we actually got to see how the sausage is made. That's both very fast, very exploratory. And I'll just... Uh, next one, I was actually at June 29, 1995, which we actually covered way back in episode number 7. That was a very psychedelic, otherworldly version of David Bowie. That set went um, free. That was the first time I'd ever heard free in any way, shape, or form. The fog was lifting off of Jones Beach. A buddy turned to me, gave me a huge hug, said, this is the greatest fish song I've ever seen, perhaps. (laughs) And then Bowie, Incredible Bowie, Strange Design, and Incredible Yem, which is uh, an unbelievably good set. And then wrapping it up here, we've got uh, the December 11th, 95 Bowie from um, Portland, Maine. This is insane psychedelia. You fuse kind of like summer 95 with fall 95. It's kind of a brilliant jam there uh, at a time when they they really started playing more compact versions of Bowie uh, by the fall of 1995. Still really good, still exploratory, but not that like wide open schmearing of a jam. Not in any way uh, germane to our conversation, but that was the night when I saw my uh, when I saw Tube for the first time, which was the tune I was chasing. And I got back to my parents' house. I was home from college break at like two in the morning, and I busted into my parents' room. And my mom stood up, sat up in bed, and I said, "They played Tube," and she said, "Good for you, honey." And then she went right back oh, to sleep. She didn't really, she didn't really care. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> that's I've how had, much of a geek I am. I've I've, I've, I've had those throughout that night. I was like surprise guest Warren Haynes, which was yeah surprise yep. 1995. Yep, <laughs> that was before he sat in with everybody. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um, oh, it's Warren Haynes. Oh, all right. <laughs> Uh, wrapping up this list before we just jump uh, into the the tour and the and the and the show itself. Um, July thirtieth, ninety seven. This is kind of ninety seven had some really good lengthy Bowies. The Bowie Cities Bowie from Ventura, California, and then uh, December third, ninety seven. This is uh, probably along with the Minneapolis one from ninety four. My favorite Bowie. It's like pretty standard for fifteen, sixteen minutes, and then I don't know where they go into this Bliss Jam, which is my yeah. personal favorite type of style of music they played in fall of 97 part partly because i'm a contrarian and partly because i just really love <laughs> fish ambient music um and i just I, I love this jam so much yeah i was at um i was at that show and what a lot of people if you didn't go to the show it doesn't come out on the tapes but there was like a 75 minute set break at that show <laughs> Which was, <laughs> people were looking at each other like, where's the band? Like, are, Did they break are up? They okay. <laughs> so when they came out with Bowie, there was like some uh, Take Me Out to the Ball Game teases in that Bowie as well. I and mean, that was a delicious version of Bowie. I kind of took it for granted that it was great because it was fall 1997. Everything was great. We were really spoiled as fuck. But yeah, that's. Uh, Great Bowie, great possum into like start stop funk jam in that set. Yeah, that's good stuff. And I would be remiss to not point out that for that Bowie City's Bowie, I was 
dead fucking center on the rail. Oof. Jeez. Yep. I uh, I waited all day for that. Well, not all day like they like the crazies, like the rail creatures do now. Um, this was like, I got there at like noon, and um, and I, I think I was like sixth in line. But then they opened it, and then there was like it was a long run, and I. I'm not fast, but I was the first person to get to the rail. So yeah, when I'm when I'm motivated, I'm apparently fast. So <laughs> um, yeah, I, I remember. I'll be totally honest here in this setting. Um, David Bowie was like the last big fish song to really win me over. I think it just like terrified me when I first got into fish, <laughs> mainly because like when they would drop out of it in those big jams, it, it like to your to what you were saying earlier, Drew. Like it, it felt like anything could happen and that kind of freaked me out as like someone who was just getting into improvisational music sure and I, I remember listening to this bowie and you can so clearly hear you know i i, I want to say it's like 18 19 minutes into it when they find the funk and you just hear this like groove and you hear cities emerging out of the yes. jam Yes. And I remember the first time I heard it, I just like had this shit eating grin and I was like, okay, I finally get why Bowie is as great as it is. Yeah, that was spectacular. Yeah, and I'd been chasing cities forever. I had that what eight six eighty eight, the Roma like tape when they played cities. I think that's the right one. Um and Oh yeah, because yeah, it was so like I, a, a huge bust out at that point. Like Yeah, it was that was I very believe rare. they played it in Europe, but that was the first uh they did play it in Europe, but that was the first stateside uh yeah, one in yeah, almost ten years. So yeah, yeah they played okay. at Hamburg, and then they played at Adventure, and then yep. slips to Creek, the Hamburg show. Yep. Right. yep, yes, yes, yes. That's it. <clears throat> so um, before we get into the jam here, let's talk just really quick about this show as well as about this run, um, because uh, I, I I've said it before on this podcast, but I'm fall in the or excuse me, summer '95 is my favorite fish tour of all time. Um, I love how much the band challenges the audience, how much they challenge themselves. And it was such a treat to be able to watch a summer 95 show just about a month or so ago at time of recording um, to really just see how the band interacted, how fast they were, but also like how they just let themselves go and Reba, you enjoy myself, David Bowie in particular. Um, This show coming about five days after that Deer Creek show, the first of two nights at the Man Music Center. Um, I would say, from a setlist standpoint, this is pretty standard from a summer '95 like approach. You get like in set one a mix of staples: your fee, your rift, stash, coil, the new song being Spock's brain. You get a hoist tune in Julius to remind everyone that they came. They had an album that came out about a year ago, um, and then set two, you get this like. There was, there was always like an intro to the jams in summer 95. Like it was usually like 2001 or Haley's Comet go into a massive jam being Bowie here. You get a ballad out of life boy, a big historic build in Harry hood. And of course, like Drew said, you get acoustic army. It's <laughs> kind of like this show kind of like ticks the boxes for me. I feel like you could hand this to someone and be like, this is what summer 95 fish was all about. Um, for, for you guys, what is this show kind of like for you in terms of uh, where it sits in the larger tour? I think that you I think that you just nailed it. I mean, uh, it's 
it's interesting dichotomy for this tour that um, in terms of setlist wise, there's and setlist construction, there's actually not a lot of exploration right. um, at all. Um, and, and yet, within that lack of setlist exploration, there's like unspeakable levels of exploration. Right. So, um, <laughs> yeah, which is which is is interesting. And then, and it's not the only time. You know, there's a lot of times when you could, uh, you know, you could pencil in like there was a good chance in, you know, '94. I. I saw a number of Runaway Jim foam openers, you know, which I always enjoy because I love both those tunes. But um, you could you could kind of if you were paying attention to the set list, you could really predict frequently what was coming next. Um, and yet they would stretch their legs, which is very different than nowadays, right? Where they do right. like the, you know, like 230 songs in a year, and uh, you know, and they I think that they are very aware of that number. Um, but yeah, this is like this is a typical summer '95 show in the fact that its uh, set list is not remarkable, and yet the playing, and not just the big jams, but just all of the playing, uh, is is remarkable. Yeah, I mean anything. Brian's correct. You guys are right in that kind of like there was definitely a structure. There was a rotation. You get a lot of Susie Greenberg's, Choctaw's, Torture's, Sparkles, and whatnot. But just because the quality of the playing was so high, the tempos were not quite at like a fever pitch like you might get in like 1999. But, you know, the tempos are very strong. And just about you're practically guaranteed like a 20-plus minute jam almost every night. Yeah. So... <laughs> You know, if at any point you were ever somewhat bored with the first set, I know I wasn't bored with any of these first sets. All you would have to do is with the set two and then basically just get your mind blown. Like, I'm trying to think maybe a bit later in the tour, something like July 3rd from Sugarbush doesn't really have any much of a huge jam. July 1st from Great Woods, I mean, it's got awesome versions of uh, Stash and. What are the things? It's got stash and melt, but nothing like the, like the big 20-minute range. Right. Otherwise, I mean, you know, it's summer 1995. There's nothing to complain about. One thing I'd be curious about, Drew, I, I, I recall listening to a really great episode of um, our close friends over at the HF pod that um, uh, you were on about, I want to say like a year and a half ago, talking through the best shows of December 1995. Mm-hmm. And I'd be curious, like this coming six months prior, I've always viewed this tour being like as as far expansive as the band could go musically before they really tightened things up, trying to go towards the larger musical goals that would ultimately emerge in 1997. But um, you get this like beautiful peak in in December '95 out of it. Um, I'm curious, like from your perspective, both musically as well as like fish history wise, where do you see summer 95 fitting in the larger history of fish? Like, how do you think that this tour impacted the band going forward? That's a, that's a great question. Um, 95 is my favorite year of fish. Mm -hmm. Um, the, and yeah, and and I, for my taste, December 95 is the greatest month that they have ever played. Mm -hmm. Um, the, they, 
by the end of that fall tour, um, which again, I would love, and I don't actually want them to be in a better place or excuse me, in a different place in their lives, but I would love to see them start a 12 shit. Uh, as I think Andrea Nusinoff, uh, tweeted the other day during dinner and a movie that she would kill to see a sample right now which is like which is true like i would <laughs> i'd love to see anything like yeah i mean absolutely i would love to see son of a mule so which the which which, which your friends at hf pod uh yeah um <laughs> they edited out like four of my son of a mule rants and i still there were still like five. i'm not i'm not making that up so um anyway um that that kind of cracked me up but um but yeah, the I now I'm thinking of Son of a Mule. What was I going to say? Uh, so December '95, they they like I think that there was a lot that I would love to hear what they could do today, starting on September 27th, and essentially with a one week break, playing all the way until December 17th. Sure, like sure. it would be it would be amazing. I mean, just um, and and maybe they'll do that some other time. I doubt it. Um, you know, in the future, um, but the i i think that by the time that uh there well the 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 deer creek bowie that we've talked about a couple of times that we just all saw like a month or six months ago at the time doesn't really <laughs> exist anymore during this thing it's turned to last um yeah it has turned to lay very very well done so it's yes foreshadowing like, there you go so you're hard. like a professional man <laughs> holy crap there you go Bunch of five episodes um, yeah <laughs> start to pick things up yeah, but well, my my podcast, the Entrepreneurial Musician, I'm on like 200 and something, and I still am a bumbling idiot. So, um, the um, but anyway, so I need to get some lessons from you. But by the time December '95 rolls around, like the power that they play some of that stuff with, well, or, or even what we already mentioned, the uh, October. Um, I think actually we mentioned this in the segment with Don, so you have not heard this yet. Um, the um, the the antelope from ten twenty four ninety five, like they 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 had that power in summer ninety five, but it wasn't as refined. It wasn't as like just like um, yeah, it was more expansive. You know, it was power and wandering at the same time, which is like everything I look for. Um, but by the time it kind of it's interesting how their sound morphed through ninety five when they could still take things deep. But I don't think the band was capable, and I don't even mean to imply like a quality of it getting better. It's just an evolution. I don't think the band could have played the Albany Yem in the summer. You totally, know, like totally. um, yeah, um, uh, which uh, there's just something about December '95 where the Albany Yem sounds like they got together in a big elaborate hotel suite and took like a weekend and planned that entire thing out. Like every right. single detail of, like. you know, it would be cool is if we came down and then Paige like, you know, stood up on the clav and then took this wild solo. And then we like, you know, I mean, it's just like, it's like, it's like a studio version of it. Um, right, whereas right. summer 95 just sounds like, I don't, I don't know. It's like you put the sunroof, uh, you know, you open the sunroof and going 80 miles an hour down the highway and you just like put your head out and you're just blasted <laughs> by air. Yeah. Uh, it's just, it, it, it feels like, again, like they don't know where the hell any of this is going. Um, and yet it's different than the really expansive stuff in fall of 94, um, right. which I caught some of, I, you know, I was not in, I wish I was in Bozeman or in, uh, in Bangor um, for mm -hmm. those tweezers. 
Um, but I, I, you know, I saw I saw the the twelve nine ninety four in Mesa, Arizona. That tweezer, which mm. kind of ended up dropping into slave, which was crazy and amazing. But that was kind of unhinged at first. Um, like I, I saw some of that stuff in fall, but then it 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 um it was kind of it was darker, it was angrier in fall yes. of ninety four. Um, and then it kind of so the summer was almost like a halfway point, I think, between like the the angry, really spacey '94. Now I'm also I'm glossing over like the the Fleezer, which again I love because I'm a weirdo. Um, but even that's not really super angry. It's just like it's just demented, you know? Right? Um, yeah, yeah. I think that's best so, way to put it. Yeah. So it kind of goes from like angry space to to a, a less angry but still just as spacey and with a lot of power and then by the time the fall and especially the end of the fall tour rolls around um then yeah they're they they kind of had the power thing where they just it felt like they were at the height of their powers like by the time this year ended and some of the stuff i think i've i've heard uh, i think it was one of you described it like that it can be a little difficult to listen to um mm. I love this stuff. If I could go and see any show that Trey has ever played that I didn't attend, it would be the Surrender to the Air shows. Like ah. those would be like that would be the absolute like time machine. If I could only see one, that would be it. Um, and there are a bunch of fish shows that I would kill to be able to have seen that I miss, like Binghamton, um, you know, December '95. Um, there, there's a bunch that come to mind, but those Surrender to the Air shows, like that's like. That's everything to me. Um, so, I in some ways I like summer '95 even better than than December '95. But there's just something about December '95 that I think it, it kind of it feels like a cohesion of like of fall '94 and of summer '95, and it's like this it's this beautiful evolution, um, you know, as as a band that'll just take your breath away. Totally agree. Totally agree. I remember buying Surrender to the Air. I think I was. 16 years old and that came out. I bought it because Trey was featured. And I put it on and just get that <laughs> blast of brass. And I'm like, oh man, what have I got myself into? This doesn't, this doesn't sound like fish at all. And that was the day you became a man. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> those were the seeds. Those are the seeds planted for Beyond the Pond. My second yeah. bar mitzvah. <clears throat> that's right yeah there's a whole thing yeah there you go this was a second whole thing so yeah love it um well before we jump into the jam let's talk here really quick about um just some essential shows that we would recommend from the summer 1995 tour um kicking things off here out west uh june 10th from red rocks this, I would say, has a really great set list if you look through it, and it also has a massive mic song, which um, teases at some King Crimson midway through and really feels like the big like portal opening of uh, Summer 1995 of what was possible. Um, jumping ahead, uh, my... I have a lot of asks for Kevin Shapiro, but perhaps none greater than releasing June 14th, 15th, and 16th in a really nice, ideally vinyl, but uh, more than likely CD box set that I can own and hold physically. Amen uh, to that. Right? Like, I mean, just what a run for the band through the Southeast. You've got uh, Memphis, Atlanta, Raleigh. Memphis has the Mud Island Tweezer. 
Raleigh has the, or excuse me, Atlanta has the stash into I Didn't Know, which just brings me to tears every time. Once that trombone comes in, I just like, <laughs> it's like such like ridiculous, like feeling and emotion uh, coming out of Fish, plus another wild Bowie. And June 16th is probably my favorite show of the tour. Uh, Dogface Boy, Catapult, Melt, Jim, you enjoy myself. I mean, just uh, incredible stuff through that show. Yeah. And I would throw um, the uh, the next night too, just as a contrast um, in uh, in Gainesville, Virginia. Um, the the tweezer is very different than the tweezer on the 14th, and it's yes. very different than the tweezer on the 22nd. It uh, it segues brilliantly into Johnny B. Good, and then segues brilliantly back into Tweezer. But it's like a rocking tweezer. This is why I. I and, I don't know this, of course. I wonder, like, did they say, hey, let's do a rockin' tweezer tonight? I mean, they <laughs> might have, but it's like, it's totally, and and Mud Island is like yeah, 50 of the uh, greatest minutes of my life, that tweezer. I mean, I've, I've uh, yeah, when it was, what, maybe three or four years ago when like, uh, uh, you know, camcorder footage of that was like, was discovered on YouTube. And the person, I mean, it is like, it is rough. I mean, there are times, the thing is just bouncing all over the place. And I watched the entire thing, like <laughs> leaning forward. I, I was, I was on tour. I was like in a hotel room in North Carolina when like the tweets and my phone started blowing up from friends saying, did you hear? And then I sat and watched like the whole thing at like three in the afternoon. Um, yeah, and it's it's brutally bad video, but I it's like yeah, but it's worth it. it it's oh, totally it's amazing! It. <laughs> it's amazing, amazing. But then the fact that they can take the same composition, and then it's like a you know that tweezer on the seventeenth is like a straight ahead rocking version to the point where they dropped into Johnny B. Good, which I believe is the first time they ever played that. Yes, um, and then segue brilliantly back into Tweezer, and then obviously the Fleezer, which you're about to get to. I mean, it's just like they're just all over the map in like the best possible possible creative way on this tour absolutely so just a few to go forward quickly we've got june 20th 1995 from cuyahoga falls ohio that was a live fish release in the classic really good version of spock's brain whatever that's worth killer chalk this torture in the second set mike's groove lots of fish and weirdness and slave and slave to the traffic light and um, acapella, Amazing Grace Encore, Fish Nera plays a bad show in Cuyahoga Falls, like for whatever reason. June 22nd, of course, this is the uh, from Canandaigua, the Fleezer Show. Good set one, three songs set two, theme from the bottom, tweezer, tweezer reprise. I mean, your mileage may vary on that tweezer. Give them credit for going for it. Few more. Just got uh, June 26, 1995. Of course, the famous short from SPAC. That's almost as perfect as you can get for summer 1995. Massive atonal down with disease into free to kick off the second set. I always say, if I get a chance to talk to Trey, the first thing I'm asking is, what the hell happened to? Don't you want to go? And what do I have to do to get it to come back? <laughs> that's, that's a fantastic set over. That's like. Their version of like the Dead's like Good Times Roll. That's just like everything you want, like an opener, and they played it twice, and that was it. <laughs> Brian, what do we got to close out? 
wrapping up the uh, the tour here, June 29th from Jones Beach. Uh, we covered this show in uh, episode seven, all around great set list, massive Bowie and you enjoy myself just sitting off each other in set two. Dave was at this show uh, June 30th. One and a half of the perfect hometown run in the summer. You've got a great Mike's in that show. Yeah. And uh, July 1st, part two of a magical faux hometown run, if you will. Their first show is a great wood since the uh, Game Hen show uh, and its counterpart from the summer prior. Stash and Melt, uh, July 1st. Uh, friend of the pod, Rob Mitchum, just wrote about every Summer 95 show in uh brilliant fashion um even if i disagreed with uh uh 60 of his takes um and he said (laughs) 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 he he said that uh this was the the best show of the tour to him and the the stash and the melt was a great fusion of fish crazy uh experimentation with more contained jamming kind of like what we were talking about with that tweezer a couple shows earlier it's a good show it's not the show of the tour that's a fact. No, it's it's it's. I not, don't I don't think it's the show of the tour either. <laughs> the, two things. Also, don't sleep on the uh, the the if I could from seven one. Oh, incredible! Yes. Very good call. Yeah, it's it's amazing. Uh, it's got the extended tray intro, and then um, with the 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 you know the jam section. I always call the solo section the jam section, even though it's not jams. But anyway, um, the the jam section Trey um, is sticking with uh, with just like playing playing arpeggios, and it's like there's there's like nothing happening melodically. It's just like it's just organically building and then he goes to soloing melodically and then he goes back to the the arpeggiated thing and then finally busts and just soars and it's just yeah it's uh that's um that's why he lives in a mansion <laughs> it's because if, <laughs> if you can play the guitar like that and it's the whole band um but oh my goodness it'll just take your breath away and then the other thing i wanted to mention was that the, the down with disease free that you talked about on the on the 26th from SPAC. Um, that's one of my favorite fish jams of all time. And one thing that I did want to say before we wrap uh, this part about uh, about summer '95 is that the the band did. Um, there were times when they they didn't, um, but there there was a lot relative to their history. There was a lot of different uh, they they a lot of different rhythms and a lot of different time signatures. Um, it, one thing in 3.0. There is almost no time signature changes within jams. There are times when right. the beat will stop. There are times when it will go to halftime or double time. Fishman's a master of like sliding into halftime, like for eight bars while the rest of the band doesn't. And it's like kind of two at one. It's like, you know, there's still lots of nuance like that. But in general, uh, you know, a, a lot of jams in 3.0. Uh, will modulate to uh, you know to a major key. It'll go up a fourth, or it'll go up to the relative major. Um, and I think sometimes the band can use that uh, as a crutch when there's not a lot happening creatively. They'll just kind of you know uh, they'll modulate to a major bliss jam. And there are plenty of plenty of times when they have modulated to a major bliss jam when it was the opposite of like a creative uh, crutch. But um, but the 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 end of the free um, from this uh, six twenty six show is a is an amazing example where 
um, they do this like this crazy waltz at the end of this thing. That's just one, two, three, one, two, three, one, and it's just like it's uh, yeah, it sounds like a waltz that did a couple of lines of blow is basically <laughs> how I would describe it. And then it just and it just like it erupts, and then that eventually uh, morphs into like the you know just standard four four. Um, yeah, it's a it's. It's it's just it's incredible, but there there's I, I do miss the times when the the grooves not that they busted into three grooves all that often, but there's just so much. Uh, the Mud Island Tweezer is another perfect example where that thing like came to a stop uh, rhythmically and then would you know get going again at completely different tempos, feels, time signatures, um, which I think is why some people describe it as being difficult to listen to. Um, right. But I think that that Down with Disease Free which is super exploratory and yet I think it's easier to listen to than some of the other ones. Um, but, uh, and the last, like the, I always forget, I have listened to that jam easily over a hundred times, like easily over a hundred times. Uh, and I still forget the last peak <laughs> almost every time I forget the last peak that it's coming. And I just, I, I've, of the hundred times I've heard it, I've probably laughed literally out loud like 20 times when that <laughs> happens because it's just like I was there that night. Like I've, I'm very familiar with it. And it's just the whole thing is so good that you could lop the last five brilliant minutes off of that jam and it would still be one of my favorite fish things of all time. And then the last five minutes is just, yeah, that that's everything that I chase. That was my fourth tape uh, ever. And, uh, it's a good one. I thought I knew uh, what I was getting into with fish, and then I heard that and was like, "What in the hell is happening here?" <laughs> <laughs> That's the the heavy metal poor heart where Trey's just yes, playing like yes. yeah, like just like rock power chords instead <laughs> of playing yeah. And then the Yem uh, went into uh, Zeppelin. How many more times? Like yes. Zeppelin was my first passion. That I, I just like. I just started screaming like I was just screaming, which you shouldn't try to not to do at a rock concert because people aren't there to hear you. But right. uh, yeah, I was just I, I couldn't. It, it was involuntary. <laughs> On that note, let's listen to a little bit of the incredible David Bowie from the Man Music Center on June 24th, 
If you're like me, things like music, running, and cooking all bring me happiness and meaning. However, there are times where even the things that you rely on for happiness are not enough to help you achieve your goals. The good news is BetterHelp Online Counseling is there for you. BetterHelp Online Counseling is a way for you to connect with a professional counselor in a safe, private, and conveniently online environment. Schedule your own secure video or phone session, plus chat and text with your therapist. Everything you share is confidential, and licensed professional counselors are available with specializations in depression, stress, anxiety, relationships, sleeping, trauma, anger, family conflicts, LGBT matters, grief, and self-esteem. BetterHelp is available worldwide, and if you're not happy with your counselor at any time, you can request a new one at no additional charge. With over 3,000 licensed therapists, you can start communicating in under 24 hours with non-crisis counselors. Schedules can be set up weekly over phone or video, and financial aid is available for those who qualify. In fact, so many people have been using BetterHelp, they are recruiting additional counselors in all 50 states. I've been using BetterHelp for the past few months, and I feel a strong sense of clarity, purpose, and understanding in speaking with my counselor. It's important to speak with a professional when you're feeling in need of communication and understanding. Beyond the Pond listeners get 10% off their first month with BetterHelp by using the discount code BTP. So why not start today? Join the over a million people taking charge of their mental health. Go to betterhelp.com BTP. Simply fill out a questionnaire to help them assess your needs and get matched with a counselor you'll love. That's betterhelp.com slash BTP. Just another few words about Sinlon. Sinlon's environmentally friendly. There's no watering, it's water conservation, no use of pesticide products, no mowing, super low maintenance, and you save money. Sinlon uses bio-based ingredients such as soy and sugarcane. It's made in the USA, down in Georgia. They're the largest manufacturer and installer of synthetic grass and have a USDA bio-based certification. This is the safest and cleanest turf available. It's great for kids and pets. You get no muddy shoes, socks, or even paws. Professional and certified distributors and installers are located nationwide who deliver a premium quality product that's highly durable and UV stabilized. Free time is at a premium these days. You really should be able to enjoy your yard instead of working to maintain it. You can have it in your yard where grass will not grow. It can be green all year. and It's great for residential homes, playgrounds, roofs, agility, golf holes in your backyard, and many more projects. So... Go to sinlon.com slash It was another 18-inning loss and a meaningless season for the Cubs. I am reeling today. Mmm. Sounds like you needed some get a little pep in your step, son. A little little extra pick-me-up. 
I do. This is where Grady's cold brew comes in. Order online, get their famous New Orleans-style iced coffee delivered straight to your door. Just add water to their all-in-one kit and get 36 servings of cold brew for less than a dollar a cup. So wait, what you're saying is that Grady's is going to end up saving me a ton of money and also time. I'm not going to have to socially distance in coffee shop lines because Grady's dispenses directly from my fridge, already cold and completely customizable for my perfect cup. There's a literal bag of cold brew in my fridge that comes with a spigot. Do I get a division win this year? That remains to be seen, but there most certainly is a bag of coffee with a spigot in your fridge. Furthermore, Grady's Cold Brew is independently owned and operated in New York City since 2011. Ready to give it a swirl? Get 20% off your first order at Grady'sColdBrew.com with promo code BTP20. All right, guys. Thank you so much for hanging with us here and listening to that incredible David Bowie from the Man Music Center in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, June 24th, 1995. So as we noted at the top of the episode here, we are joined by two very special guests uh, that we are going to turn to here in terms of... uh, getting their knowledge, their insights on uh, the larger music that we were hearing both in that uh, larger jam there, as well as a lot of the music that really pushed Trey forward specifically from a compositional standpoint um, and do something that we haven't done here in quite some time. uh, And that is focus on uh, kind of the broader classical music uh, world and in terms of like larger compositions that Trey utilized to push himself forward as a musician. So uh, we are joined here by Andrew Hitz and uh, Don Hart. How are you guys doing here tonight? Just fine. Yeah, doing great. Thanks great for having me. Great to be here. Absolutely. Thank you guys so much for hanging with us here. And um, before we kind of get started, we have three uh, artists and three movements to to present to you guys from a listening standpoint. Um, Drew, I know that you had mentioned you had uh, a, a couple of artists that you wanted to shout out in terms of kind of music that some of our listeners should be checking out um, in, in terms of kind of this larger uh, compositional genre that uh, that we're talking about here. Yeah, I just I wanted to to talk uh, the classical music world is having a little bit of a reckoning, uh, which is long overdue uh, because a lot of the way that uh, a lot of us were taught is by the, you know, the same composers, the canon, if you will, uh, which we're going to talk about some of them uh, with those three pieces that you talked about. And that's incredible music, but there's also, uh, well, two things that I wanted to mention one is that there are a number of uh, black composers who were every bit the genius of the uh, the white ones that uh, that most of us, if not all of us, some of them like Mozart, have heard of that were just as brilliant at composing. And there's a very good chance whoever's listening to this has never heard of them before. Mm. Uh, for example, William Grant Still, uh, who wrote a, a bunch of symphonies, wrote like a handful of operas, wrote like 200 compositions. Um, his Symphony Number no. One, which is subtitled Afro American, is incredible, and his Symphony Number no. Two, which is subtitled A New Race, is also really great. 
uh, Samuel Coleridge Taylor, Florence Price is another one. Um, and then, but, but also, uh, I just wanted to, to give a, a, a shout to, uh, to some living composers who are doing their thing right now. And obviously we have one on the line with, with who's Don Hart. Uh, but, um, <laughs> but there are a, a, just a number, there's an incredibly wide range of people from, uh, Valerie Coleman, uh, who used to be with the Amani Winds? Uh, she's an incredible flutist and uh, and composer. Jeff Scott, who's the horn player for Amani Winds. Uh, Amanda Gukin, who's one of my favorites. Uh, she has something called the Forward Music Project, which has a lot of um, uh, her mission statement is all about activism. Um, and uh, she's a, a phenomenal cellist and entrepreneur and composer. Jessica Meyer is someone who has um, who is a, a composer in New York City who did not start professionally composing until she turned forty, and uh, she's like in her forties, I believe. Uh, she hasn't been doing it that long, and she's made this huge splash. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, we're only talking about orchestral music um, in this next uh, segment, but there are also some um, some incredible uh, wind band conductors. Uh, John Mackey is uh, is one of my favorites. Um, he, he tends to write a ton of percussion parts in his band music, which I, I find absolutely fascinating. Uh, he has a tune called red line tango, which is, uh, which is nuts. Uh, Brian Balmages, uh, who is another fantastic composer who, uh, he's notable cause he, and, and again, these, these people are all very much active. Um, and I, not a single name that I have here is over the age of, 50 maybe i think jeff scott no jeff scott's maybe 52 uh, but they're all none of them are old um but brian balmage just writes music from beginning band like grade one all the way through uh top professional uh orchestras uh, he's written for the president's own marine band um and then a couple of uh, composers who are not uh, strictly choral but um but who write a lot of really great choral music eric whitaker and dale trumbor are two people that come to mind um and uh, I'm going to help you guys make a playlist of some of these uh, these artists, but I just wanted to uh, to point out that uh, that there is that there is so much incredible music um, that is being shared with the world uh, right now and ten years ago and fifty years ago. And one of the pieces that we're going to talk about is the Rite of Spring, and some people still call refer to that as new music, and mm-hmm. that is not new music. It's like hundred <laughs> years old. So, um, yeah, that's, uh, yeah. Anyway. So I just wanted to give a, you know, a shout out to some of the older composers who should be every single person in the world who knows who Mozart is should know who William Grant still and Samuel Coleridge Taylor and Florence Price are. And yet the, yeah, the, unfortunately the overlap there on that Venn diagram of people that know both names is nowhere near where it should be. Um, and then just that there's a lot of great stuff that's happening as we speak. Um, and that you can support those artists to continue to have them, you know, have their, their voices be heard. Absolutely. We will be sharing that playlist, uh, wide and far with our listeners. I'm curious before we jump into this, like you note that, um, there's like such a break. It feels like between larger composers that most music fans, if not all music fans are aware of, and then more modern ones that most music fans tend to not be aware of. Do do you have any kind of thoughts in terms of why that might be? Yeah, I'm, I'm sure Don has some thoughts too, but I, I I think that uh, there, there has been this real push in classical music 
to market around uh, like the the genius model, where you know uh, where Bach was a genius and Beethoven was a genius, and um, and uh, maybe it's a coincidence, but I don't think so. That these geniuses are all white dudes. That's something that's <laughs> like that's worth noting. Um, but then I think it's become a self fulfilling prophecy that uh, and absolutely. If, and, and Beethoven is my favorite classical composer. Beethoven and Mahler are like my two favorites. So if you've got a, if a great orchestra is coming through D.C. and is playing Beethoven 7, I will be there 100 percent of the time. So I'm not saying that it doesn't sell tickets, but a lot of times I think the marketing departments think that that's the only thing that will sell tickets. And then when that's the only thing that they play, that's the only thing that sells tickets. So then they were correct. And then it's kind of this self-fulfilling prophecy, if you will. Um, and a lot of times, a lot of uh, classical organizations, at least entrenched ones, will kind of throw a bone to quote unquote new music, even though it's absolutely outrageous. I mean, that's that's like lumping all pop or even just rock into the exact same genre. I mean, it's like mm. such a huge, wide umbrella sure, sure. that to have like, you know, two examples of new rock music for the whole season and then say, Oh yeah, we do new rock music. And it's like, well, wait, well, who did you have? And like, wait, you know, and then, so I think that part of it is just like that. They think that the only thing that's going to sell tickets on that scale is the, is the, the masters. And again, the geniuses, which that, uh, that whole concept of the, the genius driven artist has, uh, I think justifiably come under fire, recently um yeah because again there's a lot of geniuses like william grant still was just as much of a genius as beethoven and yet most people have never heard of him so it's not just the genius thing working so i might add one thing if if i can uh yeah the the, uh differences between older music and newer music sometimes is an accessibility uh factor as well Mm -hmm. you know and 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 uh you know, it, it's it's easier to listen to something that's more accessible, and you know, sure. uh, newer composers ask a lot of the audience at times. You know, they ask them to really dive in and, and work hard at listening. <laughs> you know, so uh, that, that that's a factor, I think, as well. Great point. I think that's really interesting. I think that provides a really good segue into kind of this larger discussion and ties it back into the the jamming question here because you know, where we're sitting in terms of, uh, fish in summer 1995. Um, I I think we would all agree they were playing kind of purposefully really challenging music. I think both for themselves as well as to really see like what sort of from, from my years, it's always been like what sort of trust they could gain out of their audience. Um, and kind of how far they could take this whole experiment that they were working through. And, um, kind of with that in mind, we had, uh, we'd come up with three artists that we wanted to discuss with you guys. Um, Drew, thank you so much for, for coming up here with uh, a few selections for us that ties back to the David Bowie from Philadelphia. Um, let's jump in here with, uh, with our first one. Who are we talking about right out the bait, right out the gates? 
Well, we were going to start, first of all, um, I, I actually made this Don's problem because I know a lot about music and Don knows way more than me. So, um, <laughs> so I told him, I was like, hey, you know this jam you've never heard? You need to listen to it and then give me insights. Even <laughs> so that's what friends are for. Uh, the first one was uh, Modest Muzorsky, um, who is a, a Russian composer and, um, and actually... Uh, Don, why don't you talk a little bit about uh, about pictures at an exhibition? And uh, there was a couple of like specific reasons that that we that 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 Don tied this, and I loved it to the that Bowie jam. Well, the um, the the whole piece was uh, uh, like uh, I forget how many there were s- several pieces written about uh, actual pictures at, at an exhibition that he went to. Yeah, uh, you know, uh, art- artwork. And, um, so one of the ones that, I mean, I, I love the work. It it was originally a piano piece by Mazorsky. And then, um, there's a famous, um, orchestration by, uh, Ravel. Uh, it's it's just a a, a fabulous orchestra, um, piece of orchestra orchestrating. And, um, the, uh, I think it's the third movement in the, uh, you know the the piece is really wonderful. It has these promenades, this theme of walking from picture to picture that Mazorsky wrote, and uh, he treats treats it different ways between going from different pictures, and so that's that's interesting. But I, I think the second movement, maybe a uh, uh, second picture that he gets to, is called um, the Old Castle. What do you know about Drew? Yep, uh, that's that's what I call it is the Old Castle. Oh, okay, yeah. it was uh, Vecchio or something. There was one of the was it was that Italian or? Yeah, there's all sorts of like yeah. alternate titles. I just I go with whatever the easiest one is because I'm a anyway. tuba player. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> we won't go there. <laughs> but um, but anyway, it's a, it's a wonderful piece. It's just it's just this very descriptive um, piece of music. You can you can just feel yourself kind of floating around around the place and. Um, there's a, a fair amount of chromaticism in it, and and the in the uh, in the jam, one of the things I noticed was this long section of uh, downward motion that, that they kept on going back to, like you know, it, it they sort of broke the broke the the groove for a second, and and Trey or whoever was doing it would just have this descending motion in there and then it would kind of get back into the jam and then somebody else would come back to it and, and keep on doing it. If, if anyone wants to check where that is, I had, I had it marked at around uh, nine fifteen in, in the, in the jam. Got it. And um, see, this is why I asked Don, let's listen how thorough this. this is. Yeah. He's this. got like, he's got footnotes. <laughs> and I, I came up with a little, a little name for that section. Call, I called it the Fun House. <laughs> <laughs> that is that is spot on in terms yeah. of how how I hear some of these summer '95 jams. Where like sometimes I just feel like I'm in like a, a like a veritable nightmare. <laughs> in the best way possible. I love it. It's just like what is what is going on right now. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, so they're doing all this des- descending motion, and, and and they just won't let it go. And, and I got I got to thinking about well, what are what are they doing? What what are some of the techniques that they do when they jam? You know, and there's um, we can get into specific specifics on on what some of these are, I guess. 
pedal point where a, there's a sustained note, either from anybody, it could be from Mike in, in the bass or Trey will soar above things to just hold a note out for a long time. Um, and, and I think a lot of times what, uh, you know, sometimes in a jam, I think they're trying to figure out where they're going. So right. it, if, if you're just holding a note, you can kind of listen to everybody else and say, well, where am I going here? You know, that's, <laughs> you know, where's everybody else going now? Not, then they could follow, follow through. Um, there are little theme and variation things. There's re- re- repetitive figures that will just, you know, maybe the same type of uh, effect, you know, trying to figure out if, if I come up with a good lick, I just keep on doing it and see, then everybody else can kind of see where they want to go. Uh, stuff like that. Well, well, one of the things I thought that they do is they'll just come up with something and do it in excess. And there were two spots in this jam that I, I thought they did that with. And that was the that descending motion thing where they kept on coming back to it and coming back to it. It was like yeah. four or five minutes or something like that. Or that I forget. And then also that ex, the accelerando, um, which we can talk about in relationship to one of the other pieces that we were talking, uh, we're going to talk, talk about, um, they, they just, they kept on slowly increasing the tempo for the long, I mean, it was like, I forget the, uh, what was the, it was at least like two and a half minutes, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. And it, it was just ridiculous. Yeah. And, um, you know, so, you know, so they were doing some of these things in excess, but I, but I thought, and maybe Mazorski didn't do to that extent, but there was this wonderful descending line in the, at the end of the old castle that it just reminded me of. And, uh, I'm going to give you, I'll give you a link of a particular, a particular performance, uh, uh, that you can find online. Um, and it's about four minutes into that. It's just really wonderful moment. Yeah. I, I love the use of like the word excess to describe these, uh, these jams. And, um, I was, I was listening to pictures at an exhibition today and, um, was thinking about that during like the old castle movement that like, he's not like necessarily pushing it, uh, with as much, um, like there's like a punk element to like what fish was almost doing in the mid 1990s. And you don't know, you Mm -hmm. necessarily, you don't necessarily get that with, with this piece, but, um, that like excess of like just returning to the same theme repeatedly in a way that is like almost meant to distort you, like the way that you're hearing this and kind of your perception as you're hearing it was just like really thrilling to listen to. Yeah. I would say that fish, Fish doesn't know from excess ever. <laughs> <laughs> the words excess and fish don't ever come up. I'm hearing it for the first time. <laughs> <laughs> However, yeah, with um, that funhouse bit, I know exactly what you're talking about in the sense that it sounds like they're almost running the jam through a funhouse mirror. It's sort of like a repetitive funk riff, but it's sort of very much distorted in a way that is immediately traced to something that they would do in summer 1995. It it was just, you know, and I'm not as familiar with, you know, what they were doing that, that decade or, or or what they've done in general. I mean, I'm I'm a relatively new fan when it comes right down to it, but, um, but that was, that was so cool to listen to. And and I've listened to a, a few other things from that era and, um, this one sort of stood out in some ways. It, it, yeah, it was, 
it was pretty cool. All right. Wanted to mention briefly one other movement, which is the second to last movement of Picture and Exhibition, which is called uh, Baba Yaga, which is um, this really rhythmically driven, um, very intense rhythms, which uh, to me just kind of screams summer 95 uh, tweezers. Uh, well, and in spots, right? Sometimes they're super spacey, um, but like the real exploratory, um, uh, you know, the, the deep jams, a lot of them are very rhythmically interesting. Um, and and that that's a great example of, uh, of a classical version of that. And then I also think it's the release into the last movement of Pixar and Exhibition, which is uh, called The Great Gate of Kiev. Um, is uh, is like uh, is this soaring release that gives me? I'm getting goosebumps just thinking about it. Um, it's uh, it's it's like a slave. It's like um, it, it's it's like a Reba, um, and it's like it's it's not completely analogous because it's this kind of crazy rhythmic thing that's building and then just releases to this beautiful brass writing. Um, but it's 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 got like a fish like release. So um, yeah, well, it's, it's wonderful. You know what it reminds me of? Uh, the uh, the big anthem melody at the end of um, Coyote. <laughs> oh, yeah. 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 Yep. yeah, there you go. Yes. Uh, yeah. you, know, you know the spot I'm talking about? Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Oh, yeah. Yep. It, yeah, that's perfect. So uh, the, the other thing here is, before we get on to the Stravinsky, is I wanted, uh, Don mentioned in passing before that uh, Maurice Ravel uh, is orchestrated uh, this, this, uh, this piano composition. And uh, Don, I'm not saying this because he's one of my dear friends. He's one of the most brilliant orchestrators I've ever played the music of that I've ever heard. He's like a master at it. And an orchestrator is basically somebody who can take music from one setting and then uses whatever the new setting is in this case an orchestra as their own instrument and i just wanted to hear don talk briefly about his experience with orchestrating because he's literally one of the world's best wow what a setup (laughs) (laughs) you can vent venmo me (laughs) really um well so basically like you said orchestration uh, capitalizes, I mean, you know, your starting point is a, a composition. So, um, you know, when, when you talk about, I, I made a list of some considerations for each for p- composition and orchestration, since you have to start with composition, you know. So, with a composition, you have melody, harmony, rhythm, tempo, uh, and instrumentation and texture to some degree, at least, at, at, at the beginning stages. Now, instrumentation and texture is basically you know doing that for an orchestra in 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 an orchestration so you have um you pick out what what you know you figure out what instruments you have um you figure out how you're going to voice things you know now Ravel in, in this particular uh in the Mussorgsky he really stayed very close to what was done with the piano he didn't you know add like counter melodies and it was basically, uh, you know, uh, um, added a, a little bit of percussion here and there and some things that weren't in the piano, but he stayed very close to it. Now, when I do things for Trey, you know, maybe I'll add a counter melody and some, some other things here and, you know, and I've fiddled with harmonizations at times, but, but basically for orchestration, you're, you know, 
you're, you're talking about combinations of instruments, you know, like we call them doublings. So like you put uh, easy uh, doubling would be piccolo and uh, flute and octaves or something like that. Not mm. actually doubling, but in octaves. Um, you can do it, do odder things, you know, piccolo and maybe uh, something really weird like bass clarinet. Um, when we get into the uh, Stravinsky, well, there are some some wonderful moments where it just has all sorts of odd combinations of things, you know, and you start wondering, well, is this really still the orchestra? Is there some synthesizer playing or whatever? You know, so um, hmm. there there are other things, um, dynamics. Uh, you know, you have a whole lot of control to make it super loud, super soft. You have weight. So there was an example uh, in the um, in the Stravinsky where it was real soft passage and it was just some of the orchestra playing like maybe, you know, 20 instruments or something like that. And then all of a sudden this huge orchestra, I mean, he has like eight French horns, um, you know, this is really big orchestra back in the early part of the century when they still had big orchestras comes in, but at like a really soft level of this, you know, and all of a sudden you could feel the weight of the group even though it wasn't a whole lot louder necessarily. It, it just, so you, you have different textures oh. that way. Um, and then of course, all the instruments have various characteristics in bit different parts of their range. Um, uh, you know, clarinet is real mellow in its low range, real piercing and it's, you know, uh, up, up high and it, very flexible in its middle. So you have all these different considerations that you, um, want to make good combinations that make aesthetic sense and um or or sometimes you even want to turn things on their ear so it makes a statement it's such a big subject i i'm a little tongue-tied I, I, no that's that's a great that's, yeah, i think that was great. a great summary it's like as you could just hear it's not only the all of the knowledge that someone like don has about all of the particulars and then what all of the combinations which there's just like hundreds of them um you know that that are available on the palette but then it's the creativity and the vision to be able to you know to take a piece like stash when he arranged it for trey and then to just like figure out like what sounds are going where and and thinking about articulations and uh you know and i just there's just so many layers to it and most arrangers are fine uh some there's a few that are really bad those don't tend to work too much but then there are some that make the music just like there's there's something that's being said, uh, even though it's a resetting of the thing, and it makes it really easy as a performer. And Don checks both of those boxes. Mm. Absolutely. Thank you, sir. <laughs> well, one one other little phrase that I came up with when I was thinking about this, um, and it, I, I had it right after that, the jam technique of excess, expected aesthetic versus unexpected. Yeah. <laughs> So, and, and those guys, you know, fish will just turn you on your ear, you know, as soon as you look at you. And I love that about them. And, um, you know, so that's something we're all, we're always trying to think about is, you know, it's, you know, you, you can figure out what's appropriate for a situation, but does it make more sense to make it inappropriate? 
<laughs> I know exactly what you're talking about. I love that. I don't think I've ever been able to like articulate it in that sort of way, but I like just hearing that and thinking about this particular jam, thinking about, um, you know, it's top of mind right now because we saw it two nights ago as of recording the stash from Great Woods, which mm-hmm. would go on to become the Alive One stash, uh, where there's just moments where you you feel that the band should resolve something and instead they distort it further or they turn you on your head and you know it takes a lot of patience as a listener i I feel like to really appreciate that and once you click into it it's like the most incredible stuff ever um but it it definitely kind of screws with you as you're listening to it That's a great way to put yeah. it. <laughs> I've got to imagine writing that sort of stuff and composing that is really, uh, really fulfilling because you almost know that you're going to just like turn heads in a way that they aren't expecting to. Yeah. Yeah. It, uh, a little bit I've experienced in that, in that realm, you know, it, after a while in a composition, when you're really sort of, in the zone, something else is kind of pulling you along. It it, it really is a muse kind of a situation. You know, it, it's, it's really crazy. I'm not sure if I experience that every time I, I write, but there's been a few sure. times. Actually, one of the times I really felt like that was happening was um, when I was working on uh, the orchestrated version of time turns elastic. Mm. It, it was, um, it was qu- quite an experience and, you know, you're, you're sort of, you know, you're, you're living your life and everything, you know, you, I mean, getting up every morning and doing stuff during the day, but there, there's something, somebody sitting right next to you doing something, doing something. I, I, I really can't put my finger on it. It's, but that, that whole idea of, you know, amuse and trying, trying to uh, catch something before it leaves you too, you know, that really is a, that is a real thing. Well, I think I speak for all of us and to say that uh, the orchestrated version of Time Terms Elastic is pretty incredible. Yes. So, well, whatever, whatever, I guess, Muse hit, it hit correctly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. <laughs> In that sense. Yeah. Um, let's see. If we're going to close, I just wanted to, um, for uh, some Beyond the Pond listeners, if they want a somewhat, uh, I guess, masochistic bit of extra credit, <laughs> pictures of an exhibition was... Performed in full by the uh, 70s, 80s British prog rock band Emerson, Lake, and Palmer. Not sure why they did it, but it's, uh, we're talking about excess. A lot of Keith Emerson, Oregon excess on that. <laughs> and uh, it's like a live version, and they call out, we're going to do pictures at an exhibition. And the crowd goes crazy. And I'm thinking, they don't know what that means. <laughs> is that, a, is, that is the audience dubbed in? Is that what you're saying? <laughs> I think the audience is, yeah, I think the audience is dubbed in. <laughs> it's worth hearing at least once because it's actually pretty faithful to the source material other than Keith Emerson stabbing his work. <laughs> I like, I like the, uh, I got I need to listen to that. I did not know that existed. I like the audience screaming as, as if they know what that is. Cause some of them would be excited. Some would be like, wait, that's really long. <laughs> what's what's <Right>. happening. <laughs> it's very, very like 1970, like the British accent calling out 
We're going to play Aqualung. <laughs> Picture that in exhibition. <laughs> anyway. Oh, goodness. So Stravinsky um, is one of my uh, favorite uh, composers, um, and he he wrote a, a number of uh, of very famous uh, pieces. Um, well, he he was very prolific, but the the Rite of Spring is uh, was probably the most uh, controversial and the most influential um, at the time. Um, it was not the premiere was uh, famously not well received. Um, at all. Um, and Don, uh, I've, I've performed it uh, a number of times. 
um, it's really, really difficult, like really difficult. Like there are sections, the, the end, um, the last time that I did it, I was, um, I was subbing with the national symphony and, uh, it was a series of kids concerts and we played it. We played like the last six minutes of, of right of spring, uh, I don't, maybe seven or eight times over the course of uh, four days. Cause there were these you know, one hour, like multiple concerts for different school groups. And uh, one of them, it was like the sixth one, I looked up at the conductor in the middle of that last page. And for a second, I was like on two wheels because like I was like uh, my eyes went back down and I was like, where am I? So, uh, yeah, and I was like and I'm sitting there like as soon as it's done, I was like, you idiot. Like, yeah, how long you been doing this? Like, don't look up on the last page of right of spring. Like, what are you doing? What are you looking at his hair? Like, just don't, yeah. The conductor can't help at that point. Yeah. You're just counting one, two, one, two, three, one, two, one, two, one, two, three. So anyway, um, but it's, uh, the reason that I thought of this piece is because, um, uh, is because it is very challenging to listen to, I think, uh, for, for, think the vast majority of people i think that's a very safe uh, a fair thing to say if you're not familiar with it um and also similar to the the summer 95 jamming style which i adore um and that's putting it lightly but it it's um <laughs> it's very disjointed and yet it's really cohesive um and it's like it's it's almost like the the white album where it's like you know like the, i think the white album flows well because there's absolutely no flow to it at all um, totally you know it doesn't like flow poorly there's just like no flow right um which actually works uh for for my taste um but right of spring can kind of feel like that it's very um yeah as uh, don was mentioning before the beginning has this famous bassoon solo um, and, um, and then, and, and it kind of, it meanders for a while and there's some swells. And then all of a sudden there's like this very, like almost barbarically rhythmic, the, the entire orchestra is almost being played like a drum set, um, with these, like in this weird, uh, time signatures that keep on shifting. Um, and yet it like, it totally, it works. And then it goes to, and then it goes to delicate in spots. And it's just, it's like, uh, you know, it's like a summer 95, one of the really big summer 95 jams when they had the ability to play with just like almost unparalleled in improvisational rock history power, like King mm-hmm. Crimson esque power. And yet they also just did this like, you know, gorgeous meandering stuff as well. And, and that's what made me think of right of spring. Yeah. The, the, uh, I listened to it again this morning and, and, and the way it went back and forth between this huge stuff. And then all of a sudden this, like you say, this really delicate, uh, uh, thing, you know, uh, the, it was music that was written for ballet. So you got to realize that there's also some visual with it, you know? So, you, oh. you know, it, it, I mean, the, I think the music itself is very visual, but you know, it, if, if you put that ballet with it, you can even re- you can realize that even better but um so uh yeah the, the the rhythmic things in it uh the you know where i mean the one of the first ones he just had these consistent eighth notes you know from, from i think the strings and and then there were these stabs at various points within those eighth notes it just and it just it just set you on edge it was yeah. just, it's just wonderful stuff, and then he had, and even took that further later on, where you know, it, it wasn't just even eighth notes. It, there was other things. I mean, 
Um, I can't remember the specifics right now, but it, it, it is definitely worth a listen. It just really seems to apply to um, you know a lot of what I was, what I was listening to uh, in in that uh, in the jam that we're, we've been talking about. There's a, a, a definite vibe that's related. One thing that really struck me as I was listening to this and comparing it back to not just the David Bowie, but um, I mean, to me, aside from the fall of 1997, I don't know if there's a more thematic tour for Fish than summer 1995, where if I throw on one of those jams, I know exactly where I'm at and, and what, what was going on kind of within the band at the time. Um, and and I was reading a bit about the Rite of Spring, um, the, the focus, like the overall theme of the movement was, was uh, uh, about paganism in Russia and kind of this idea of the mystery and the great surge of creative power in spring. And it connected it further for me to summer 1995, which comes immediately after this kind of down period for fish where they were writing a lot of new material. Um, and when they came back in June, they were kind of building on this music that had really challenged audiences in a part of the country that they hadn't really played in, uh, as much, or at least in as large a venues the previous fall, thinking like late November, early December of 1994. And when I was thinking about this, the right of spring, comparing it to this David Bowie, it, it kind of reminds me of like the way fish was playing, like of a really just intense late spring thunderstorm that mm-hmm. like, cleanses the earth and kind of like re like re everything feels reborn through this kind of like chaos. And it was just like something that Hmm. I kept coming back to as I was listening to the two of those. Yeah. One thing I want to say is uh, just really quickly um, as I was listening to, or as I was reading a little bit about Stravinsky, um, this is of immediate relevance. Uh, He was in school in the early 20th century and his school closed for two months in 1905 which was the aftermath of the blood of bloody Sunday, which really just like helped to increase his study in music at the time he was in law school, which was something his parents were pushing him towards and he wanted nothing to do with. And, um, it made me think there's some kid out there right now who, if the schools remain closed, not only will they stay safe, but we could have our 21st century, uh, uh, Stravinsky, who knows? This is this is a PSA just just in general. It's just the flu, man. It's just the flu. Oh, I would take that though. Awesome. I would take that win for society. Yeah, yeah, yeah no kidding. No kidding. <laughs> also, uh, <clears throat> although we happen to be talking about the Rite of Spring, I think probably the thing that Stravinsky's best known for is the Firebird Suite, which is one of those compositions that. You've definitely heard it, even if you don't think you have. Trust us, you've heard it. <laughs> if you've ever gone to a marching band competition, you've probably heard it. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's true. Yeah, that the end of the uh, the end of the Firebird. Uh, I mean, the the whole thing and Petrushka. Those are like the three yeah. big orchestral works that he's famous for. Um, but yeah, the, the end of Firebird is uh, is magical. There's one of the most famous uh, horn solos 
um, in you know in the entire orchestral repertoire, um, and then uh, and then that leads to uh, yeah to the the raucous ending. But um, yeah, that's that's really really the the uh, Baltimore Symphony recording with David Zinman is the one that I had when I was a kid, and um, hmm. I mean I could yeah you could play any bar of that, and I could tell you that it was that recording. I mean it's like hmm. that's how many times I listened to it over and over and over again. Yeah, that's good stuff. What's also fascinating to me just about Stravinsky is that I think he lived to be like 88 years old. I mean, he actually was alive long enough for his compositions to become famous when he was still alive. Like he's one of, he's a composer actually got to enjoy his success as opposed to someone like we just talked about, um, Lugorski, I'm sorry if I just like butchered his last name, but I mean he is an alcoholic who didn't live very long. So I mean all the fame was all posthumous. Right. Whereas I guess like Stravinsky, relatively speaking, was was kind of like a bit of a rock star. Right. Like he might have dated Coco Chanel at one point. <laughs> I love this. You guys know way more about all these composers than me. I, I skipped music history class a lot. So yeah, it was. They put it early in the morning. It's like, what are you doing? I was up until like three a.m. listening to Fish last night. Why would I be in class at nine in the morning? I don't understand. But anyway, but stay in school, kids. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> can, I, can I tell you one quick story about my? Uh, I actually probably one of my early experiences with Stravinsky. It was um, I went uh, to a Philadelphia Orchestra rehearsal, and they were playing. Uh, uh, Firebird, and I was sitting there listening to it. I, I forget if I came in partway through it. They got to that last section. I had no idea what was coming. It was before I was, you know, familiar with them. And that that ending just blew me away. I mean, <laughs> if, you, if you can imagine, not not only that piece of music, but the Philadelphia Orchestra playing it. It, it was it was really special. <laughs> I'm, I'm picturing the uh, the guy in the the old uh, Maxell uh, tape commercials, like yeah, yes. like that. That's what the end. Of, that's what the end of Firebird does yeah. to you. Like yeah, the first time I saw that live, I was just like yeah, I had the, I had the that look on my face, like I you know what, what the. Uh, What's the famous baseball call? I don't believe what I just saw. Yeah, it's the uh, the Kirk Gibson home run, right? Yeah, yes, it's like yes. yep, that's that's what I felt the first time Jack I saw Buck. Firebird. Jack Buck. Yep.
right. I think this is a good segue into um, the final artist we're going to discuss here being uh, the Hungarian composer Béla Bartók. Yeah, the Concerto for Orchestra um, is um, is a piece that I I actually played in uh, in youth orchestra um, in Boston. I was in an inappropriately good youth orchestra that could handle this piece. I was very lucky. Um, and, and this was another one that it's, it truly is a concerto for orchestra. So like the, the, the writing for the tuba is amazing. Like every single instrument really gets to show off, uh, what it can do, which I think that, um, that Don can talk, uh, you know, a lot too. And then also can, uh, he was the one that came up with this, uh, this tune and because it relates specifically to a part of the Bowie. Yeah. The thing that reminded me, uh, that, that the Bowie reminded me of this piece about was in particular, I think was um, the, the ending of the, of the jam, how it just sort of takes no prisoners. It, you know, it accelerates mm-hmm. and then all of a sudden they're going and it's just in your faith. And it, it, I mean, it's so great. And, and I think there's some aspects of, uh, of Bartok, especially um, in, in the last movement, he, he starts out kind of, you know, not slow, but there's, it's just a really sort of a short introduction. Then all of a sudden the strings are just tearing it up. These, these scalar passages, you know, they're just playing their heads off, you know, and, and, and it gets this big gigantic, gigantic theme that it lands on a couple of times. It, it's just glorious. And it, it just reminds, you know, and, and the whole, that whole movement, it, it, there's a couple little quiet spots, you know, again, you have that, that contrast in the movement that, you know, uh, that you, you feel in, 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 in fish jams. I mean, like that, that, that quiet, quiet spot that we really haven't talked about a lot. I mean, since I've been here um, in, in, in this, in the Bowie jam uh, is just, I think just beautiful. And, and that sort of reminded me a little bit of, of these places where it kind of calms down in, in that fifth movement. And, but then it takes off again, and it, it's uh, you. It, I think I think also the the angular har- harmonies. Uh, maybe that's a good way to to put it. Mm. Would remind you a little bit of of uh, of fish at times too. Yeah, when uh, Don and I were uh, were talking about this, um, when we were talking about relating this specifically to the Bowie and about how that Bowie has a um you know has an accelerando although uh meaning that it's gradually speeding up although as don pointed out and he was he was right on is that there are times when that bowie jam is not actually getting faster uh you know in terms of beats per minute but it just continues to lean further and further and further forward Hmm. um and the 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 analogy that I always use, uh, because it's a stark contrast with students, is if you're uh, talking about about hip hop, if you look at Snoop Dogg, is like has amazing rhythm, amazing time. He's so far on the back of the beat that it sounds like he's almost in the beat. Bef- you know that just happened. <laughs> and then if you listen mm. to Eminem is so on the front of the beat. I mean, there's just like an absolute immediacy of sound to the articulation. It's like, it's almost early, but it's not. 
And both of them are lined up with, uh, are exactly in the pocket, but they are on like the furthest to the left and furthest to the right of that pocket that you can get. And, um, and fish in, you know, uh, summer 95, uh, fall 94, uh, fall 95, they had this gear, um, where they could go the 10, 24, 95, uh, antelope, uh, comes yes. to mind, oh which God, is yes. like, which is like, so that might be the most intense thing I was ever in the building for, um, yeah. like from them, uh, and the Julius from that same set, um, which is just like two tunes before that, which it's just so driving. And, uh, and I bet if you got a metronome out that they are, they probably do by the end of like that antelope jam, I'm just guessing it's probably five, six, seven beats per minute faster than when it started, but <laughs> it feels like they accelerated like 50 or 60 beats a minute. Um, but it's just because they can just continue to just keep on pushing harder and harder and harder to the right, if you will. And, um, and that's kind of what, uh, and the bar talk is actually an accelerando. It's actually getting faster, but it's amazing that fish can recreate that without actually even getting faster. That's like really, that's, that's next level chamber music. Um, that's yeah, it's just stunning musicianship and communication. One of the words I described it, uh, with was, uh, maniacal. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That just that yeah. just sounds like summer ninety-five fish. Yeah. Yep. I, I, so something you said as well when you're talking about kind of the back and forth between this like gradual intensity, but also the calmness that you were hearing. Um, I mean, this is like the first time I feel like fish was able to ever play with like true space and like true, like quiet, even though it's like, it gets to be very aggressive. But like one of the things I love about summer 95 is you have those moments of kind of calm and like calm before the storm that, um, they, they just, they were almost too talented and like too fast to do a year earlier. Um, but, but it's wild to think about, you know, the, previous dinner in a movie that we saw from deer Creek 95, where they all, I think that's the, I think, I believe that was the last Bowie before this one that we're talking about. And that one was just so aggressive and straight, like just so hard driving all the way through. One thing I love about this is like this, this one really balances between this aggressive churning maniacal music, but also like these moments of space where they kind of like reset themselves and they keep going. Mm-hmm. The, uh, the settled moment in that jam, I think still felt like, you know, you were in for something, you know, <laughs> it didn't feel, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> it, it didn't feel like it was just going to end, you know? Right. Um, they, they were kind of setting you up, I think. <laughs>
Beyond the Pond podcast is part of Osiris Media. It is co-hosted by David Goldstein and Brian Brinkman, and it is edited by Brian Brinkman.